following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Father, we, we thank you so much for the gift of this evening. Lord, we thank you for your, your word, Lord, and the truth that uh, we got to hear from Heath this evening, Lord, about just the uniqueness of your truth in explaining the reality of people's lives. Um, God, it is so true just across the board, and, and we, we rejoice in that. And Father, we, just, we pray, God, that you will help us see how that applies specifically to um, our eating as we discuss and, and look at this this evening, Lord. Will you grant us wisdom and insight, um, attentiveness, and, and just a hearts that can are open to hear from you. We thank you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, like it says in my name is Scott. Um, I'm a pastor in West LA. So just just up the five and the 405 from from here, and um, been there for ten years. And uh, yeah, love love pastoring there. Love um, just have a, a church that we yeah really adore. It was a church plant ten years ago. Almost 10, it'll be ten years in October. Um, and it was actually church planting that got me in into biblical counseling. Because I planted a church after having gone to seminary and realized that I knew how to preach and I knew how to study. But all of these people <laughs> with their problems, I didn't quite know what to do with. And, and it was at that point that um, I, 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 I thought to myself, you know, I, I think biblical counseling is what I'm looking for. I wasn't sure. I think, it was, and and it was like finding like the pot of gold, right? Just that has shaped our church and and so many things over over the years. And a number of years ago, maybe uh, gosh, maybe like four, maybe four years ago, I did a survey with our community group leaders. We had you know a number of, of people leading small groups. I said, I, I wanted to know like what are the most pressing issues you're facing in your groups. You know, what, what are the issues that come up over and over, just so that we can make sure that we're equipping you to, to handle these, that we're addressing them as a church? And the first one, I could have, like, I, I knew, right? It was depression. Right? It was just constantly, it was kind of, there, there, it was just, it was everywhere in, in everybody's group. And the second, I knew easily as well, and it was sexual issues. Right? It was either pornography or lust or masturbation or something, right? It was some form of sexual issues was number two. And I, and I, I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if I really needed to do this survey because I knew the answers already. And the third totally caught me off guard, and it was eating issues. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, I don't know anything about eating issues, which is why I'm the perfect person to teach to you. About, no, I'm, <laughs> but but this is that it began. It began the process of, of of me looking into it and and asking, okay, Lord, what what? How do we understand eating issues, and how can we help to to address them in the lives of people that are struggling in all all sorts of different ways with their eating, right? With this this thing we have to do every day to survive, yet can be so complicated. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the place that you can start, right, we, you get terms, and we get all these different terms, right, whether it's overeating or anorexia or bulimia, and the first thing I needed to do 
to be completely honest, is say, what, what exactly, like, I know, I have an idea of what those things are, but how do you define that? And I, I think it's actually helpful, and, and the definitions are in your notes. I think it's helpful to look at the definitions that we get from the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. Not, not necessarily because that needs to be where we go every time, but it's helpful to be aware of where these terms came from. Because it's this manual that the, the, the term anorexia was coined, right? It's, it's this manual in which the term bulimia was, was coined. And so what do they say are these, these things? And we're not going to spend a, a bunch of time on them, but I want to look at them real, real, real briefly. And it, in the manual, which is the kind of, this is the, the Bible for psychologists and psychiatrists, right? It's the diagnostic manual, right? How you diagnose different problems and how you give them labels. And how you, how they diagnose anorexia nervosa is, it's a few things. But one is it's a restriction of energy intake relative to the requirements leading to significantly low body weight. And, and it kind of describes that. And it says less than is minimally expected, which is fascinating actually because they used to have a BMI amount and in the most recent revision, they took it out. And now it's this kind of a subjective, less than could be reasonably expected. Um, and I know some communities in West LA where what's reasonably expected is not healthy. <laughs> but, right? But, but, but what's re- what, it's less than what's reasonably expected. But essentially what it's saying is this, this, is a, this first point says that this is a behavior, right? You're not taking in enough energy. Right? You're not taking in enough food. Secondly, there's an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat or be- persistent behavior that interferes with weight gain, even though at a significantly low weight. So what, what's fascinating to me here is so we, we saw a behavior in the first one. This is an emotion. So it's a behavior fueled by an emotion. And the emotion is fear. Right? Fear of gaining weight. And third is this disturbance in the way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced, undue influence of the body weight or shape on self-evaluation. It's a disturbance in how you perceive yourself, right? Which is a problem in thinking, right? There's a, there's a thought problem. You're thinking, you're not thinking clearly, right? Well, you, the way that you're thinking is not completely clear because you're evaluating yourself inaccurately. And so we have, it, wrapped up even in just this brief, this brief definition is we have a behavior problem, an emotion problem, and a thought problem, and identified in these specific ways. And it, we go on to see, and so, okay, we have this problem with, you know, I'm not taking it enough because I'm afraid, and I'm not thinking clearly about what I am. What's also interesting about these this diagnosis, it's simply, it, it's simply a description. None of this tells us what the actual problem is, right? These are all, these are behavioral symptoms, thought symptoms, emotional symptoms, right? That are saying, okay, there's something that's causing it. It doesn't tell us what's causing it, but it gives us a des- describer of the symptoms. We get the same, uh, a similar type description of symptoms from bulimia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa involves recurrent episodes of binge eating, and it 
describes that, again, fascinatingly, subjectively, um, eating in a discrete period of time an amount of food that is definitely larger. It's like a clinical term, right? <laughs> definitely larger than most people would eat in a similar period of time under similar circumstances or a sense of lack of control. So it's, it's a behavior. Actually, the sense of lack of control could be termed an emotion. Right? So it's a behavior and coupled with an emotion. And there's another behavior tied onto it, which is recurrent, inappropriate, compensatory behavior, which is fascinating. And this is where I learned the bulimia wasn't just about throwing up. Right? Because there, it could be an inappropriate use of laxatives. Right? It could be an inappropriate excessive exercise, which is a fascinating phrase. I, don't, I, don't, I have never in my life heard anyone refer to excessive exercise as bulimia, except for in this manual. But it's interesting that it identifies that as a problem. Um, and binge eating or inappropriate compensatory behavior goes on for three months, and self-evaluation is unduly influenced by body shape and weight. Again, a thought problem. So we have these behavior and emotion and thought problems. Thirdly, we have, in, in a sense, the opposite end of the spectrum in what's called binge eating disorder, which is reoccurring episodes of binge eating, like we talked about before, but without the, compen the compensatory behavior. <coughs> And the binge eating are associated with three or more of these, these different symptoms, right? Either you're eating faster than normal, or some people call that just having young children, but that's, um, my, my wife and I go out to dinner, and in like 10 minutes, we're like, we're like oh wait, we don't have to, uh, we can eat slowly, this is amazing, so... But I don't, have all, I don't have three of these. I only have one, so I'm okay. But eating until feeling uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not feeling physically hungry, eating alone because of feeling embarrassed by how much one is eating, and feeling, interesting, behavior, 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 emotion, feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed, or very guilty afterwards. Marked distress regarding binge eating is present. That's a fascinating to be diagnosed with binge eating disorder, you have to see it as a problem. If you're not distressed about it, it's not, you don't qualify. Isn't that interesting? Mark distress, you, so, so really this is all about how you feel, and the binge eating occurs on average at least once a week for three months. So what's helpful about these definitions? Well, in, in, in one part, they're a helpful shorthand. In, in, one, in one part, they, they help us see some of the symptoms that can tend to go together. Um, but what we see here is that these are, these are just shorthand for you have a behavior that's unhealthy. You have an emotion that's problematic. You have thoughts that are untrue. And the problem with the shorthand is when the shorthand becomes the, define, the definition. And we take these, these fear, behavioral problems, untrue thoughts are all things that we know and can be confident that Scripture speaks to, right? Scripture, we, we know that, that Scripture thinks about, talks about how we think and about true thoughts. We know that Scripture talks about how to change behavior. We know that Scripture talks about fear, about shame, 
and about guilt. And so Scripture talks about all these things underneath the umbrella, but as soon as you give them a label, oftentimes we say, oh wait, but Scripture doesn't talk about that label. Oh wait, Scripture doesn't talk about anorexia. Scripture doesn't talk about bulimia. Um, But it talks about everything that that these definitions talk about. And so I, I don't, I don't want to dwell on them, but I want to jump, but I, but I do want, I, I wanted to do that more for kind of our awareness sake. And I also want you to see how, how, uh, how few steps we've taken down the road of helping by giving someone a label. I don't think a label is necessarily bad or necessarily good. Somebody comes to me and says, I think I have anorexia. I think I'm struggling with anorexia. Uh, I don't say to them, well, I, let me tell you about what I think about labels. Right? No, that's, that's fine. They can use the label. That's, that's fine. But the label, we, we've only taken two tiny steps down a really long journey. The label oftentimes gets treated as the end of the journey. Oh, I know what I have now. I know what the problem is. But it doesn't offer the type of insightful truth the person needs to actually get help, to actually change. So we're, we're going to kind of skip over in, in your notes the, pop, the popular definitions, and we're going to come back to this. But even a simple kind of biblical, spiritual idea. If you hear all of this and you kind of put it all together, if you've been to, most of you, you said you've been to an IBCD conference before, you've heard about idols of the heart, and you've heard, you've heard like you can hear, you can look at this and say, you know what the problem is, and you're, you'd be correct, the problem is that you have an idolatrous desire for either food or a certain body image or both, right? You have an idolatrous desire leading you to a, either food, a certain kind of food, or attaining a certain body type or size, or potentially both. But what I want to identify today is that 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 is that's true, right? That's that's accurate. That's helpful. It is insightful. But it's not many more steps further down the journey than the anorexia label or the bulimia label. It, it, it is a little bit further. Right? It's a little bit more insightful than labeling somebody anorexic. It's a little bit further down the path than labeling somebody bulimic. But just as the world can feel like I know the solution. I know the problem. We've we've identified the problem, and now we're skating the rest of the way by labeling them anorexic, right? That's what they're like. Oh, I know my problem now. Okay, now that I've been diagnosed, I feel so much better. We can do the same thing as Christians by saying, "Oh, I've identified. I've identified your idolatrous desire. Right now, we know what the problem is. That's true. You, You know what the problem is, but there is a lot." of distance still to go. And this is why this session was not called, you know, a dozen Bible references 
for people with eating disorders. This is why it wasn't called how to diagnose someone with an eating disorder, but it's called listening to someone with an eating disorder. Because, and this is one of, one of the things I've seen time and time again, particularly in my own ministry, is I, I am so... My flesh and my impatience want so desperately to jump to a conclusion so that we can like fix and move forward and you know deal with this problem. Because if counseling is about the trouble in the world, if counseling is about the problems in life, and we have and Scripture has a knowledge of what that is, then let's let's apply it and move on. But many struggles, especially with something as daily of an activity as eating don't get dealt with that way. And we don't actually move forward near that quickly. And what we need to do far more than just diagnose someone, far more than just describe them, is we desperately need to listen. To listen to what their, what their experience is about. You can't hope to answer the questions of what is going on in this person's life. Why are they eating the way they're eating? Why are they not eating? Why are they choosing to eat what they're eating? Do their choices glorify God? We can't hope to answer these questions without listening. And with the definitions we've just discussed, you have a paradigm, and that's good, a paradigm to understand the person's struggle, but that doesn't mean that we actually understand that unique person's struggle. And so what I want to do, maybe just for the next like five to minutes, is I'm going I'm to read you a couple of stories, a couple of descriptions. Um, I, I, I actually took them from books or articles because in that setting, they're the most concise. <laughs> so I think it can be kind of helpful in, the, in this setting. But I, I, I want you to think about it, and then we're going to kind of brainstorm, what do you hear? Right? So I, I want you to ask yourself, just what, what do you hear as I read this? Um, this is um, a story, uh, brief story about Carol. And Carol's, Carol's in a, you know, she's in a session similar to this where the topic had already been on eating disorders. Um, her question, the, the question will seem really out of the blue if you don't understand the context. So that's the context. So it says, she was a, a dazzling blonde with bright blue eyes, immaculately dressed. She looked as if she modeled for Vogue magazine. She asked if I had a minute to listen. Carol was an MIT graduate with a 4.0 GPA. She was well known in her city, successful in business, and highly regarded for her leadership abilities and achievements. Have you been struggling with an eating disorder, I asked? It didn't come out of the blue, right? That was the topic of the conversation. She flinched, looked down at the floor, and hesitantly nodded. Can you tell me about it? I never intended for it to go this far. In college, I used laxatives maybe once a week after eating a lot. But now it's every day, and I'm trapped. I can't quit, and I'm scared to death that it's going to end up killing me. As the tears streamed down her face, she cried, I feel like such a loser. I've done everything I know to stop, but I'm hooked. So what... 
just in this really brief description of Carol, what do you hear? I'm sorry. Control. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What? what, what that doesn't work. Well, um, what makes you hear control? Why do you say you hear control? Uh, by the description of her, yeah. she's in the meticulous of her appearance, and um, so she has a set image of how she wants to present herself, Yeah. and uh, <coughs> she's got to control which ones are out. Yeah, so she has a meticulous... Yeah, she has a meticulous <coughs> She's in a, a, a kind of a, a meticulous appearance, so which is fascinating because even by the description, right, you can listen just by looking, right? You you just observe, and so there's 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 some sense of control here. What else do you hear? Self sufficiency. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. No, oh, God, she just feels trapped. What else do you hear? Fear, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's afraid. She's afraid of what's going to happen. She kind of fears, yeah. Perfectionism. Perfectionism, okay, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah pleasing, pleasing people. What else do you hear? Hopelessness, Hopelessness. absolutely. It's a great one. I um, this is an aside, but just for free. I uh, I teach at a Bible college, um, and one of the things I do is we, we do some different. Um, I, do, I teach some different uh, seminars on different issues, and we do some. We can oftentimes we'll do something similar to this. And one of the things I find fascinating is it doesn't matter if it's depression or eating disorders or sexual issues or anxiety. This appears on every list. Hopelessness appears on every list. And if you don't think that the gospel has something to say across the broad spectrum of our problems. Um, anyways, we, we could talk. We could spend the rest half an hour on that. We won't, we won't though. Um, all right, so let, let, let me, let me just, so, so just a few, thing, a few things here, right? Just what, this is what you hear. And, and a part of why I do this as well is I also want you to hear what each other hear, right? To ask yourself, did I hear that? As I was listening, do I hear, did I hear these same things? Um, let me give you another one. This is a, it's a fascinating example, but it's from a book called Life Without Ed. And Ed is, pers- is an, an eating disorder personified. Okay, so you're going to hear the voice of Ed, but it's, there's not a literal voice in her head, but she's kind of personifying the struggle, right? saying that this is what it says to me. She says, I stare at a large menu and ask myself, what should I order? Ed mistakenly thinks I'm directing this question at him and replies, if you are absolutely determined to eat, you must at least get one of the low-calorie, fat, low-fat entrees marked with a little red heart. No matter what, you must choose a lower calorie entree than your friend orders, which will prove that you are more in control of your life than she is. After my friend orders the always forbidden cheeseburger and french fries, Ed points out, all that fat is going to end up right on her hips. Can I order the low-fat chicken entree that comes with a baked potato, I ask? Ed says, fine. But on the baked potato, you will have no butter, no sour cream, no cheese, and no bacon. When the server asks and your friend looks at you like you're nuts, just tell them you like it better plain. 
Waiting for the food to arrive is always the hardest part. I'm starving because Ed never lets me eat any other meal of the day when I go out. All I can think about is the food. I cannot pay attention to the conversation with my friends, so I just nod in the right places and say, uh-huh, a lot. Ed loves to make comments about how, my, how much fat my friend is consuming compared to me. She's eating french fries with ketchup. Does she know how many calories are in ketchup? What's the point of pouring extra calories onto anything? In addition to making remarks about my friend's meal, Ed tells me exactly what to eat and how to eat it. He says, eat half the chicken, but make sure you scrape off all that fattening sauce, cut the baked potato in half, hide one half under your napkin, and eat a few bites on the other half. After the server clears the table, Ed congratulates me. You did it! You're finished eating, and you're still hungry! Just think of how big you would be if you'd eaten that whole greasy burger. Be proud of yourself, Jenny. You have such control. Your poor friend doesn't have a chance in life. What, what do you hear from Jenny and Ed? Obsession. Obsession? Okay. What else? Torment? Yeah. A distorted, distorted worthlessness. Yeah. Absolutely. What else do you hear? Unachievable standards. Yes. Unachievable standards. What else do you hear? Fear of man. Yeah. Self condemnation. Yeah. She's proud. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of pride there. Yeah. Yeah, she's better. Yeah, she's better than her friend. And what's. I, I This. This description always gets me because she's so... The, one of the biggest issues for her is control. She's so in control. And she's completely out of control. Right? That, like, control is her biggest issue to her, but she's enslaved. Right? And as we listen, what we're going to, to realize and what we're going to hear... Um, are a whole host of of different things that are unique to the person. And this is why labeling one with an eating disorder, labeling both with an eating disorder, only kind of begins the process. But we need to to listen and and hear, okay, what what is going on? What what are the categories? And what are the symptoms that this person is experiencing? What are the categories we can put them in to understand them biblically? You know, as we, as we look at this, and what I want to look at, I, I want you to, to just think in, in two broad categories. And um, Heath talked about it a little bit in, his, in, in the general session. But th- these two broad categories are her own sin or his own sin and the suffering they're experiencing. Because we, we get caught in this, in trying to I, major on one versus the other. In fact, 
the vast majority of what we've observed and heard and put on the board would probably be termed sin issues, right? Idol issues, heart issues, right? Issues that they have. And this is what so often happens when we listen. We, we listen and we've been trained to listen and we've been trained to listen for idols and for desires and for the root of the problem and for the contributors to the problem. And we so easily gravitate to the sin issues, to the control, to the self-sufficiency, the fear of man, the people-pleasing, the perfectionism, the hopelessness, all of which are there. But there's this whole other category that when we listen, we need to be careful to hear, right? and that's her suffering. What's contributing to this? What ways in which has she suffered and is she suffering that are contributing to this as well? And how does Scripture give us hope? Because, and I think that even just as biblical counselors in general, we oftentimes pull back because the world is so fixated on people as victims, we want to react. Right? No, no, you, you missed it. There's, there's, the, 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 people are not just victims, right? They, they are responsible, and, and there, is, there is sin, and there's a problem here. And that's true. But sometimes in making that swing, we miss the fact to which, or the, the extent to which, people, especially when it comes to their eating, really are suffering as well. And so what I want to do, and then we're, just, we're going to run through a, a number of things over the next 15 minutes, and then we're going to look at, kind of at the, at the end, with our last 15 minutes, we'll try to look at just the gospel, and how does the truth of God speak to these things. But I, I want to just share with you, over time, um, as both as I've counseled and, and read and conversed with uh, a number of the other counselors in our church, things that have heard from things like this that we've heard from people who are struggling with their eating. Whether it's not eating enough, whether it's compensating, or whether it's overeating. Um, I, I didn't, for the sake of time, I didn't read a story about somebody who's stuck in overeating, who struggles with overeating, but it's just as real of a struggle and, and has a significant um, significant sim significantly similar actually um, pieces. So here, here's just some of the things and, and they're, they're, they're listed in, in your notes, but I, I want to talk about them I'll, I'll talk about each kind of briefly. but the, the first is control, which we've talked about. What is it that we've that, that have heard they hear from people who are struggling with their eating? And one is control, right? Um, Eating disorders statistically exist in far higher numbers in action-oriented families, families that are results-based and that are very disciplined, you know, like biblical ones, right? Ones that have, have rules and good rules and great expectations and are action-oriented. And what happens in action-oriented families when this appears when it finally comes out, you know, it finally comes out, this person has, I, I, my daughter is struggling with an eating disorder. You know what happens in an action-oriented family? They ask the question, what are we going to do? Right? What are we going to do? We're an action-oriented What are we going to do about this? 
instead of asking the question, why is this happening? And a lot of it is because in, we're looking for this control, for control, trying to have control over our appearance, control over our intake, or maybe just food is the only thing we can control, right? Life is crazy and unpredictable, and control is oftentimes a very significant theme, like we talked about. Another that we identified here is fear, right? Maybe it's fear of man. Sometimes it's, I mean, fear of all sorts of things, right? Fear of being overweight, fear of getting caught, fear of facing reality, fear of losing control. Fear just can consume so much of the personal experience and, and motivates so much of this. Um, those struggling this way are oftentimes incredibly fearful people. Um, the third, which we talked about as well, with kind of a, a distortion, and we talked about it earlier, is an unrealistic evaluation, an unrealistic self-image. And this was one of the things on the face of it that maybe it's... I, I, I'm, I, I'm sharing this with you as a pastor who desperately cares about this, who's, who has... you know, all, To be honest, we've all struggled with our eating, Right? We, we, we don't have an eating disorder. We have, we, our, our eating is disordered in one way or another. But I've never struggled personally to, like a, to this extent. But I do say these things as a pastor who cares intimately and deeply about numerous people who have. And one of the things that baffled me the most, because it frustrated, and, and it actually, in some ways just frustrated me, was the unrealistic self-evaluation, Right? Like, I just look in the mirror and I just I, I see I'm fat and I'm like, like, I I literally just want to shake you, right? Like maybe that will help, right? Like I don't understand how you can be like incredibly underweight, sickly underweight, and still feel this a, a different type of self-image, right? Or you could be healthy and feel this self-image. But doesn't this happen in all of our lives in different ways? Right. Do, are, are any of us ever accurate determiners of the truth of our identity and who we are? Right. The, the reality is this is actually a far more similar struggle that just can get spiraled downwards and put in a, under a microscope that they look in a mirror and think to themselves... That which is not true. Which leads to another significant reality, and this is both in overeating and in undereating, is denial. You know, and to use a kind of psych psychological term, right? But just the denial that there's a problem, the failure to recognize that there's something out of order in how I'm living my life. And that denial, oftentimes, to feed it, leads to secrecy. It leads to dishonesty, or flows from secrecy and dishonesty. Dishonesty, you know, not making you think I'm eating something when I'm not. Or eating something when you think I'm not. Right? How much of the time does eating, you know, in secrecy... I got to my hotel room, they had this, like, whole box of, like, goodies... Like candy and like, and I'm like, 
<laughs> Nobody's here. This is incredible, right? But how much of the time do you, like, I mean, I, and it can start with something as simple as, like, you know, hiding a brownie from your wife, right? Like, eh. why? why? Because I'm going to be so ashamed if she walks in and she's like, she knows because she knows this is actually my third, right? Um, and it can happen in, like, small ways like that. But, again, like any other struggle in our lives, it spirals and spirals far quicker than we would ever realize. The secrecy, the dishonesty, plainly, about it. Uh, there's actually a couple others that I, w- I was thinking about. I, I, was, I, I thought about this just on the drive down today. Uh, one is, uh, and, and, and one is even just the, the difference between functional eating and emotional eating. Functional eating, sometimes people overeat or undereat. One of the contributing factors is because they don't see food the way God created it. They see it simply, they, they eat simply for function, right? Like whatever, I, I'm not going to eat what's a best, the best choice for me. I'm going to eat what's ever, whatever's easiest, right? Whatever's easiest. I'm not going to necessarily even eat what tastes best. I'm just going to eat whatever's easiest because I just need to get something in. I'm hungry and feel, and I got to like keep going. I mean, this is, you know, this is the, um, and guilty as charged, right? This is the like fast food in your lap while you're driving because it like, you know, kills the least amount of time type of choice, which can be a choice that very easily can become a lifestyle, right? A functional eating. Or the flip side of that coin, which is emotional eating. Right? The, the, the eating, well, I'm not eating because I'm hungry. I'm eating because, as a Christian, I can't have a cigarette or a stiff drink. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I need something. <laughs> I need something. It's been a long day. I deserve half this pie. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, I mean... And you know they don't ever start out to eat half the pie, right? I mean, you cut it in slices first, you know. Like, yeah. But but emotionally and emotionally tied eating, whether it's for release, whether it's for escape, again, are some of the contributing factors. This is what means that this is why why I'm why I'm saying eating disorders are not the same. There's not a way to minister to eating disorders. Right? They, they can have all sorts of different factors. Control and functional eating combined with fear and denial all wrapped up in this like messy ball, which is this person's struggle and sinful struggle, which is completely different from this person's sinful struggle. We talked about earlier hopelessness. You just hear it over and over and over. Honestly, if they weren't hopeless, they probably wouldn't be talking to you. It's part of counseling. Yeah, part of counseling is like people, even with the, I mean, even with the growth and the acceptance and normalcy of counseling and even therapy in the world, there's an, like, people don't, don't, don't just think, wow, you know, I'm struggling with this a little bit. I should really get some counseling. All right. They, oftentimes they don't reach out until they feel hopeless. I don't know what to do. Um, and another kind of piece of this that we hear over and over is just is anger. 
anger that feels, which I guess could be probably tied into the, and maybe categorized as emotional eating. Um, and tied in with this emotional eating. So, but, but so all of these things, but again, all of these things are in many ways heart issues, right? These type of sin issues. But do we appreciate the flip side of the coin, the list of the ways in which people suffer that similarly significantly contributes to their eating and to their eating problems. One of, and I, we're not going to go through all of it, but there's a, this is why I gave it to you in your notes. Um, one of the biggest things is just the physical experience of struggling with eating disorders in some of these ways. Did you ever think that maybe someone's lack of ability to f- accurately look in the mirror and, and, and accurately interpret what they're seeing might be because their brain is starving? Right? Like, their brain is starving. It's not functioning right. Like, it's not getting the energy and the resources it needs. And, and a part of that thought problem is sin, but a part of it is just physically because they're suffering the effects of their sin. It has, have you ever thought about the fact that when somebody who's struggled for a long time with self-starvation begins eating again, they get bloated? Right? And all of a sudden, and you're like, what? how in the world can you say you're fat? And, you're like, and, she, and they're like, because I'm like literally visually different than I was yesterday. And that's a real physical reality. Like they're, they're suffering the effects the physical effects of what's happened. With bulimia, when purging is excessive, confusion and disorientation can result because of a huge imbalance in the salt and water in the body. When you purge over and over, the salt and water balance gets out of balance, and again, confusion, and your brain can't function right. In addition to cardiovascular and digestive function, not to mention overeating. Right when you overeat, and excessive food can often cause laziness, lethargy, and great discomfort, and can again affect your cognition. And so we suffer as a result physically, and then we suffer. And and we we could spend you know we go look at every possible different category. Um, we can look at the ways, even as Keith mentioned earlier, about the ways that we suffer because of Satan. We can look at the ways we suffer because of the ways people sin against us and how that contributes to our eating problems. Um, there's a whole host of things there. But one of the things I, I, I want to look at is just how do people experience eating disorders in the context of our world? When a woman or a man... And this is more and more and more common among men. Actually, whether it's an eating disorder or not, or related, this is this week's, I just got in the mail, this is this week's Time Magazine. Nip, tuck, or else. And the logic is, you're going to be the only one that hasn't had work done in 20 years. 
So you may as well, you know, and they're like, and you don't have to have surgery anymore. It can just be little things here and there. We can do some cool sculpting and, you know, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, and the point, and, and the, one of the biggest parts of the article is about the astronomical rise among men. Starts with, starts with back hair removal. It's like, well, hey, that's not too bad. Well, actually, while you're at it, there's actually some extra stuff back there you could like take out too, and you know, and and but again, like they they, they it um it it snowballs from there, and this is the the culture and the world in which men and women are living in, breathing, growing up in, and sometimes when we sit and listen to their struggle and our mind only goes to the ways in which they sin, we miss the incredible weight that is that the combination of the world and Satan has worked to put this pressure on them. They're not innocent victims, but don't be missed. They are victims. We all are. So in the world, and then just, just, just a few different kind of cultural dynamics in the world, in the world, bulimia is generally an acceptable form of weight control. Like, it, it's not seen popularly as an eating disorder, especially if it involves something other than throwing up. Throwing up is still oftentimes a stigma because it's kind of gross. But any other form of compensatory behavior read like excessive exercise, even laxatives, diet pills, right? These are not seen as disorders. They're seen as general good weight control. And you combine that with a culture that is obsessed with physical beauty, obsessed with unrealistic physical beauty. And David Pallison writes about this and he, he says one of the most conspicuous obsessions in our culture is the quest for physical beauty concern about what we look like pervades our social relationships and seduces us all men and women both to some degree or another um, he, he goes on but and statistics show across the board that, that physical beauty gets you better pay like it just does in our world not to mention every billboard and every commercial and every, like, we are saturated in it. And the most protected homeschool little girl can't escape it. She can't. Like, it is, it is, it's the air in which our world breathes. And, and, and this is, I mean, you just think about the, the pressure of this. There's an obsession with physical beauty. There's an obsession in many ways with thinness. And, there is a latent acceptance, really a promotion of overeating. Of good tasting, large portioned, easy to get, cheap food. We live in a world that is obsessed with thinness and promotes overeating food consumption. Every person that sits in our sits in our office, we sit in our living room, sits at a coffee shop with us, and says, I'm struggling with my eating, 
our response should probably be, of course you are. Right? Of course you are. We live in a world that is that is that has all of these different pressures coming on, that there's a latent acceptance of overeating, that there's, and then on top of that, there's this conceptualization of if it gets really bad, then you have a disease. Right? Then you have anorexia, and that's a disease. And there's nothing we can do about it. Right? Or there's nothing, and, and the disease model just fuels this hopelessness. Which also does the, 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 um, chemical imbalance theory, right? Like, oh, well, there must be, like, which is fascinating, right? Because, like, there's nothing wrong with you at all. There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong, nothing wrong, nothing wrong. Oh, my gosh, you're 70 pounds. You must be imbalanced. Right? But this is the natural expectation of it. And the, the last piece of this I want to look at is what about the culture in the church? I think that we can see that the combination of dressing up, dressing up for church and looking your best and then going to the potluck sometimes doesn't quite communicate as differently as we'd like. Not to mention the fact that in church, generally, gluttony isn't talked about as a sin. You can't get away from the fact that there's a huge hole in our teaching around the area of gluttony. When was the last sermon you heard preached on it? Right. Or example you used of it. And anorexia and bulimia can oftentimes be subtly encouraged or ignored. And most of you would say, and I would say, actually, I said this, I'm like, okay, you know what, I see that, but not in my church. Until I walked out onto the patio and walked down the stairs, and you know what I heard? Oh my gosh, you look so good! Wow! It's only been three months since you had the baby. How did you do it? Oh, you look so good! Without any question of, how'd you get there? Right? Any concept of, you know, maybe we shouldn't be affirming thinness as goodness. It, like, it just pervades, and we don't even realize it. So, we could go on, on, but my point is this. We have all of these sin issues and suffering issues. All this sin and all this suffering, and they spiral in this evil spiral down and down and down and down and down and down until someone is finally talking to you and we're not going to be able to help them out of the spiral by diagnosing them. We're not going to be able to help them out of the spiral by telling them, labeling them and telling them what problem they have but we desperately need to, to listen. To listen for what ways are they sinning? What ways are they suffering? And how is that complex? And it is hugely complex. We haven't even scraped the surface of it, but it's a hugely complex reality of that person's experience. And some of you may, may hear this and say, oh my gosh, that's so complex. I, if every person's different, then I don't even know how I'd be equipped to do it. Well, there's a reason why we haven't talked about a bunch of Bible verses yet. And part of that is because I'm, I'm making... I, 
maybe improperly, but I'm making an assumption here, and we're going to look at just a couple real quick, but that you actually do know a lot of scripture and how, how the gospel addresses people's sin. And you actually do probably know a lot of scripture that gives hope in the midst of suffering. And if we can take somebody's complex experience that seems all over the place and help them see how those, how their life in the world, how the billboard they drive by, how the commercial they see, how the pressure they feel at work can be interpreted and connected to the scripture and how it gives them hope in the midst of suffering, that we can actually call that suffering, then we can give them hope. And this is where I, I did in the, in the end leave you with a few different verses. A few, a few different passages. Right? One, I mean, just basic, right? Place to go. James chapter 1, where it talks about something. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We have an opportunity to not just see people as victims, but to call them to see how God wants to use the ways in which they're suffering. How God wants to use the unhelpful comments. How God wants to use the culture in which they live. How God wants to use their temptation to, or, or, or their um, the, the unrealistic cultural expectation for them. How God actually wants to use that for his glory by producing and bringing about steadfastness as we turn to him and not these other idols, these other desires. And I think that, well, similarly, we see that the gospel gives us hope for their control and their self-sufficiency and their fear and their perfectionism and their people-pleasing and their hopelessness. That hope is in the fact that, that it feels hopeless, but God has given them hope. He has paid the penalty for their control and is not holding it against them. That he's actually freed them from their self-sufficiency and is calling them to walk in the newness of life that is available for, out of their fear. And that no regimen is going to be able to get them there except for a knowledge of the goodness and the glory of the grace of Christ applied in a powerful way as we call them to repentance for this sin, right? As we call them to repentance, let them know that how often does, does a person, as a Christian, who's struggling in one of these ways, say, of course, oh, no, I know Jesus, I know Jesus forgives me, but I sure don't feel forgiven for my perfectionism. I sure don't sense that freedom in my people-pleasing. We have an opportunity again to take the truth of the gospel and massage it into each one of these areas. And as we do, step by step by step, we're going to take the steps of this journey that began with saying, you know, obviously you have an idolatrous desire, that began with saying, okay, maybe you have anorexia or bulimia, but that, that gives us a, a, uh, a roadmap 
that can last their entire life. Because if somebody struggles with their eating, it's going to be a temptation their entire life. Right? They're going to be eating every day for the rest of their lives. They can't just like go and get away from it. Food's going to be put in front of them. They're going to have to make choices multiple times a day about what they put in their mouth. And they need hope, not just to get, not just to get over anorexia, but they need hope for developing God-glorifying um, eating habits going forward. Um, and, and when we see this, we, we give them the paradigm, we give them the tools to understand God's grace, even when they, maybe when they recognize a whole nother issue of sin <laughs> that has been contributing that they hadn't ever seen before. They realize it two years down the road. But they know what to do with that because they know they can call it sin and know that they're forgiven. Similarly, they, similarly, they, they know how they have the tools for what to do when aging happens. They know what to do when they have a baby. And, and the, you know, like nice firm roundedness of pregnancy goes away in an instant. <laughs> right? They, they know what to do. Why? Because they understand that they have a category for the ways in which they're suffering in this world and what God can do with it. So, again, I, um, this is probably not the our seminar that's going to teach you how to handle every eating disorder problem you, everyone, that maybe you were hoping for. I know if it was me, I'd like come in and be like, that'd be great. But hopefully it gives you an encouragement to do, if you hear nothing else, to do two things. Number one, lean on the biblical knowledge you have for how the gospel gives hope in the midst of sin and hope in the midst of suffering. And listen. Listen well. Listen deeply. And hear so you can apply the truth of Scripture to that unique person. Let me, let me pray. Lord God, we, we thank you again for the magnitude of your grace and your love. We thank you, Lord, for the extent to which it extends to every corner of our lives. Um, God, when we think about even the questions of why we eat what we eat, of the factors that impact our lives, the cultural factors, the uh, external factors, the heart factors that contribute, Lord. We recognize, Lord, that, um, that we all have eating that is disordered in one way or another. God, help us to grow and to strengthen and to, to seek your glory to lean on you in the midst of the ways that we're suffering, to trust in you for the forgiveness of our sin, that we might impart those same things to those that are struggling even maybe more significantly. We thank you for tonight and for the power of your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.